Several years ago, when I started this podcast, I had no idea what it would become. Today, we have thousands of listeners all over the world, and I'm constantly humbled by your feedback and really appreciate you tuning in each and every week. I have a quick favor to ask of you. Would you be willing to help others find out about Game Changers? It would be a huge favor to us if you could write a really quick review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is open your phone, go to the podcast app, search for Game Changers for Government Contractors, scroll down where there's the ratings and reviews, and click write a review. This helps the podcast get found in search results and I would really really appreciate it. I appreciate you. Thank you for being a Game Changers listener and let's hop into this next episode. Welcome to Game Changers for Government Contractors. Game Changers is dedicated to helping you position for and win more government contracts. And now your hosts Josh and Mike. Hey everybody, Michael Azun here, and I've got my business partner Joshua Frank with me on Game Changers today. It's always a great time when we get together and actually do the show, because I know you've got so much going on and i got so much going on, but I know the listeners love these episodes, so I'm excited about what you have to talk today with the Federal Trends for 2022, but for those of the listeners that are new or don't know you, why don't you give everybody a quick heads up on who you are and what you do? Hey Mike, thanks for having me on again. It's uh, been about, what, a year since the last time we spoke? For those of you who are new and haven't been introduced to me. My name is Josh Frank. I'm the managing partner for Arson Federal. And Mike and I are partners in the business. Former military intelligence officer. Uh, I've worked for large companies and smalls. I ran the Department of Defense for MasterCard Worldwide up in uh, Washington, D.C. And I've worked for woman-owned and 8A and small business. We opened our doors this year. It'll be 15 years. Wow. Ooh, 15 years. We help companies position in the federal space in order to generate revenue. That's who I am a little bit about RSM, a little bit about you. And for our listeners, they may notice that between our last podcast and this one, you know, you and I have both had all of the flu stuff going on and dealing with that. I had COVID and everything. So we've got all of that voice stuff going with us today. That's always fun. Uh, so do. bear with us as we get through the, the show today. Yo, you and I were, were talking about trends that we were starting to see last year. And so I thought we come on, do a podcast about federal trends for 2022. So why don't you kick us off with one of the first trends that you're seeing? The first one has to be strategic sourcing and category management. And we've been talking about this for years. Yeah. Think GSA schedule. This is not new. Strategic sourcing category management isn't new. GSA schedules, they are a form of strategic sourcing. The Federal Strategic Sourcing Initiative, FSSI, right, with GSA, which in in my opinion has been a complete and utter failure. That started in 2005. Yeah. It's not new, but what we are seeing if you're even paying attention to the market, Mike, it is picking up speed. Mm-hmm. When people ask me, they go, why is this such an important topic? Why should I take this into account when I'm developing a federal sales strategy? Well, there's less acquisition professions. Number one, 20 years ago, there were 100,000 across the government. Today, there's like 30, 40,000. I've spoken to many of them at various conferences, events, or when I'm on the phone with them, they say straight out, they don't even hide it. We don't have enough acquisition professionals. As a result, we are consolidating and bundling requirements and contracts so that we don't have to manage as many. And the impact to the market is you have a contract or a number of contracts that are currently being operated, run by called four or five companies. They consolidate. Well, only one of those four or five is going to be able to keep a contract. Yeah. And the other ones are going to have to have try to sub um, or they lose the business. If you think PIO, SP4, you think Polaris, 
these massive indefinite delivery contracts. What most people call them mm-hmm. IDIQs, right? Or, right? or max. This must be taken into account and it is picking up speed. We're going to see more and more larger contract vehicles versus the onesie twosies that we've seen for many years. Yeah. And it's just wild. And I think one of the observations I'd shared with you was how we also, in conjunction with that, seeing less contracting officers, we're seeing replacements come in as contracting specialists. I think you mentioned junior contracting specialists. So mm-hmm. instead of replacing these senior folks with more senior folks, we're getting less experienced, younger folks in there. And there's just differences in how they handle all of this stuff. I think that's tied to that trend a little bit. Absolutely. The more junior business professionals, they don't have the knowledge. They don't have the intellectual capital that the more senior acquisition folks have. That means they also make mistakes. Again, it's a microcosm society. We have to assume and set those expectations internally within ourselves that we may have to help them as well. Yeah. You know, that's actually an expectation I'm always setting when I'm talking to a client and they're going down the GSA schedule path or they're going down a certification path. I'll say, hey, just so you know, I've looked at the numbers and they kick back like 75, 80% of everybody's first try. And it has nothing to do with you. It's often something where, hey, you didn't submit this document. You didn't check this box. And you're like, well, yeah, I did. You just resubmit it. You point it back. Like you just understand (laughs) there's not near as many of them as there are of us. And they're trying to do the job. And so we just need to help them along. I think that's an easy thing to do. Don't get too spun up about it. We see this as a trend coming up, what are your recommendations for, I think as you put it before, there's a lot, this is going to affect a lot of the product people, especially. Yeah, it's definitely going to impact product. Think the formulary with the Department of Veterans Affairs. Product companies are going to be seriously impacted. I mean, strategic sourcing through GSA's FSSI initiative put out of business dozens and dozens of office supply companies. So the impact is real and it is across all industries, Yeah. right? So if you're listening right now and you're like, well, this really doesn't apply to my what I sell. Oh, yes, it does. It absolutely does. From service perspective, CIOSP4, Polaris, etc. So, you know, what should a company do in, in terms of dealing with this? Well, one, you got to have strong relationships. Okay. Yeah. You know, you must have strong relationships with the government, which means you got to get out from behind your computer. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't, don't rely on SAM, right? You, you need to focus pre-acquisition before RFPs, RFQs hit. You know, this is, it's a concerted effort. You have to develop a situational awareness. So for all the ex-military out there, that phrase obviously sounds very familiar. Right. You got to have situational awareness. That means you have to understand how the government is thinking about how they're going to shift, how they buy Mm. what you sell. The only other thing I would add to it is every company should have or it should engage two of these IDCs, these indefinite delivery contracts, IDIQs, Matox, SATOX, MAX, GWAX, whatever we want to call them, right? At least two a year, Mm. at least two a year. Don't be one of those companies that does nothing but try to to, uh, respond and write proposals for these IDIQs. 
IDIQs all year round because that's strategic. I, I, IDCs, IDIQs are strategic, but that's not your tactical revenue. Those are my recommendations, right? You gotta, you gotta have situational awareness, which means you've got to be talking to the government. Don't rely on Sam. Build really strong relationships and engage. Respond to two IDCs every year. That would be my recommendation. Those, those are some really good blanket recommendations. I mean, people do have to get out from behind their computer and start building these relationships. You know, that's just right. a, a really good you know strategy in general. So, what is the next trend that you see that's going to impact folks? Let's talk government digitization. You know, before COVID, one in ten people in the United States worked remote, and mm. uh, as a result of COVID, seven out of ten now work remote. And the government is no different than the rest of corporate America. Seven out of ten government employees they're working from home. So the government has moved to this distributed work, you know, workforce. And the reality is it's going to stay that way for a good number of years, right? Mm-hmm. It's even after, I don't think COVID is ever going to go away, but even if COVID were to go away right a year from now, I still see this distributed workforce remaining in effect. And it's going to be this way for many years. Absolutely. So for us, uh, for those of us that are government contractors, we have to recognize that this has created issues for the government. Not all government systems are accessible outside the local area network. System access for many is slow. So processes for the government are changing. I think it was the small business conference in November down in Orlando. And I was talking with a bunch of contracting officers. They said, look, our processes are changing. Where we used to have a source selection committee, get into a room, we all have our paper and we're reviewing and doing our thing. That may take a couple hours. Now we're all working remote from home we don't all have access to the same systems. And if we do have access, the access is slow and the process just takes longer. The government is doing this expansion of digital virtual events conferences. Think of it this way. How many times, Mike, have our clients said, man, nothing, uh, everything we thought was going to drop like an RFP uh, is moving 30 days to the right, 60 days to the right. A or year. We don't, <laughs> yeah, or a year. We, we, we don't know. Well, that's a result of the distributed workforce. And the government is rebuilding technology pieces to support these new processes. So I don't think this is a temporary thing. I think it is the future. Distributed workforce and digitization is a new way of doing business. So simply take that into account. That's the only recommendation I have is you take it into account and realign your expectations. Yeah, and I think that's good advice. You know, I think for a lot of people, there were folks like you and I who've been working from our home office for 20 years. You know, when COVID happened, it wasn't even a blip on our radar. We were like, this is what we do every day. Welcome to the club. (laughs) You know, like that's kind of how a lot of us were. Then there's other people that were like, I don't know how I'm going to cope with this. And it was like their head exploding. And then six months in, they were like, I'm never going back to the office. I don't care if I got to take a pay cut. This is amazing. We we saw this giant shift. And so like culturally, what, what should have probably taken a decade for people to transition to, they transition to in like a two or three week period without the tool the processes, the even the simple things like the distractions at home from your dogs or your whatever, like trying to cope with all of that, when in reality, they should be able to do things faster. It was trying to deal with all of the other things. I always think of like everybody who, even if they didn't have ADD, all of a sudden had it because they were sitting at home and going, oh, an actual squirrel. Oh my God. You're like, well, that's how they became, you know. Culturally, I'm going to take this one down the rabbit hole. Because not everyone is built to work from home. 
That's right. Right. Those of us that do work from home, we shower at the same time. Well, at least I shower Mike at the same time. I don't know about you. Hey, the same time on Saturday, it is is what it is. (laughs) So you have all these government employees. They're no different than anybody else. I guarantee you. Not all of them, but some of them, just like a microcosm society. Some of them, they work for two hours and then they go out on the back deck and they read a book. They do something else. So there's going to be a lot of problems with this distributed workforce. Disregard the digitization. Don't assume the government's just doing everything perfectly. There's going to be issues. There's going to be challenges. Just again, recognize that the digitization of the government and the distributed workforce is going to slow things down until the government has the processes and the technology in place. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're probably another year or so before people really catch up and really have a grasp on it. Maybe a year. I don't know, maybe two, but I, I do see it coming because I do see a lot of people say, no, what do I have to do to make this work? Because this is working for us. This is working for my family, especially in the big metro areas like DC, where you have to live two hours away from your office and commute on a train or, or whatever. This has been such an eye-opening experience for them. And I think a lot of people really enjoy it. So it's a really good one. What is your next observation? Budget constraints and pricing. And I'm going to throw value into this as well. You know, low low price is making a comeback. Even if the government doesn't say LPTA, this is low price, technically acceptable. Low price is absolutely making a comeback. As government contractors, we have to focus the differentiation, communicating value with quantifiable. You've heard me say this a gazillion times quantifiable, qualifiable metrics, numbers, percentages, right? Mm. A strong quantifiable value allows you to influence an acquisition. That's probably one of the most important things that I've said so far today, right? Strong quantifiable value enables you to influence acquisition. Mm. If you're not influencing acquisitions in general, from a sales perspective, your sales strategy is flawed. You've got problems. You've got to influence. If we are not successfully communicating value, we are not going to successfully change how the prospect, how the government makes decisions in terms of what they want to what they need. Any buyer, commercial, federal, et cetera, they know what they want. A lot of a lot of us sales professionals try to, well, that's not, I, I know what you want, Mike, but this is what you need. Getting that need is literally impossible unless you're communicating value and influencing them. And so when we shift the decision process for a buyer, government buyer, to what they need, when we shift that decision cycle, that process to what they need away from what they want, then we're able to charge for what our solutions are worth. I, I, it sounds like we're pontificating here, right? We're, we're, we're just throwing out these concepts. This is bloody critical because like most of our clients, they have a hard time communicating value. Teaming partners won't call them back. Government buyers won't call them back or email them back. If you want to influence and successfully and consistently win government contracts to get away from all these budget constraints and everything being low price, right? Even if they don't say it's low price, price. I'm telling you right now, so much of what's in the government is being, uh, source selection is being based on price. To get away from that, we have got to communicate value. Yeah, no, I I absolutely agree with that. And I I think it's an interesting thing because you mentioned earlier how the government is spending more and more money, yet we're starting to compete more and more on price again. And we're seeing that that trend. So we kind of, even though the money is, is there, this, you know, this need to get really tight on price. 
advice is very important and to communicate value properly. So I know that we've kind of talked around part of the solution there of communicating your value properly will help over solve that. You have any other recommendations for this one? There's a process, right, that we use called value mapping and, and any company can go through it. Everybody that's listening, in order to update your website, make your website stronger, your capability statements uh, stronger, your elevator pitch stronger, your proposals stronger. You have to be able to tell us not what you sell, but the value of what you sell. Mm-hmm. And that means that you have to map your past performance. That means, so, you know, without having going into crazy detail, but at a high level, take each of your past performances, each of your contracts that you've won in the past. I don't care. That's commercial, residential, state, whatever, federal, does not matter. And say, okay, how did we uh, decrease a challenge? And give it a number by 30%, by 14%. Spit out, here's the value that we provided this one customer. Okay, now give it numbers, give it metrics. And then you do that for all of them. That we've really talked uh, uh, around several things here, right? Not just, are you able to communicate your value, but how do you communicate that value across your teaming partners to your buyers, you know, and using that to show them, hey, this is really what you need. Yeah. So you're influencing the acquisition. This, this is a real there's a lot more to it. Yeah, that's a whole rabbit hole. It is, but budget constraints and pricing, that's going to continue to be a trend. Protect your company against that by having really concrete value yeah. that you're able to communicate. Yeah, no, that, it's one of my favorite things. You know, we're, we're taking several clients through that right now and just looking at some of the metrics of how much money do you save that client every year by doing what you do? Uh, how many users does this touch in the company? I was just doing one yesterday with a client and we're like, oh, this touches their website? How many web users do they have? How many club members do they have? Whatever it may be, right? Because a lot of them have these little value networks that they that they build for their clients and stuff. And so there's just so many metrics that you can provide to show what you've actually accomplished at the end of the day. And that's just really cool stuff. One of my favorite things that, that we've been doing a whole lot of recently. So that's really cool. <laughs> so in addition to this, what other trends? So we're just trying to knock out some of these trends that you see here. What, what are some other trends? Okay, so I, I don't know how we could not talk cybersecurity, right? Oh. CMMC. I, of course, that's going to come up. The cybersecurity and maturity model certification. I think we can all agree it is a complete and utter mess. That's a nice um, way to put it. That's a really nice <laughs> political way, or maybe non-political way. But we all know it's inevitable. Yeah. And so right now it's just DOD, not the federal agencies, but that's coming. Yeah. Okay. That's coming probably a couple years down the road, at least for the agencies. You know, CMMC. Yeah, total mess. Uh, much like how NIH is running CIOSP4 right now. Amendment um, 14. Do you realize as the date of this recording, uh, which is, because I can say that, right? Yeah. I can yeah. say the date, January 21st of 22. You realize that the GAO found issues again, and they released an amendment. And the new proposals aren't even due until next week. This started back in May of 21. I'm sorry. I am going down a rabbit hole. Yeah. So let, let's move off that. So CMM. C2 looks a lot better, uh, but again, we'll see. Yeah, it's coming for DOD, no doubt. Yeah, and, and that's an interesting one because it was, hey, it's here. You need to implement this. And, you know, that's just the way it is. This is the new rule of law in the Wild West here. And then it was like, never mind, you know, and they just <laughs> took it back. And I mean, I had clients reach out to me this week saying, what are the CMMC 
and I'm like, we don't know. We don't know what the requirements are. The can's been kicked down the road, and <laughs> it, it's been so. It's been such a mess. It's all of our clients, right? And when the folks that I'm I'm working with ask that the same question, right, that you were asked, you know, I told them, I go, don't freak out. Yeah, don't freak out. It's it's like one step forward, two steps back, yeah. right? And I tell them, I go for smaller companies, just chill, just hang tight, and, and no need to pay anybody. Okay, there is right. no reason for you to pay anybody because let me tell you cmmc has created a new industry yeah it has created a massive new industry every company that is pretty much focused cybersecurity, they are all standing up cmmc you know even if they're not formally certified by the government to be a third-party certifier they can get you ready for it you know small businesses hang tight don't pay anybody yet and then if you're a larger company you probably should start now like as an example one of our clients is a uh is a billion dollar corporation. They make about 500 million in government, big, big time government. You ready? Only 20,000 of that 500 million is Department of Defense. Mm. The rest of it are federal agencies. But because of that 20,000 DOD, they must be fully certified CMMC, whatever that looks like and whenever that happens to be. And so for the larger companies that have much larger networks and much more data, commercially useful, you know, information, what have you, they should start now. But for all of our smaller companies yeah. uh, that are listening, just hang tight. Yeah. And that's a and good don't, recommendation. Don't freak out. Yeah. Just hang tight. You know, we, we will uh, be broadcasting it loud and clear when we start to <laughs> see some concrete stuff. My, my favorite thing is when the government government does this and, and they've done this a lot in the last couple of years where they're like, hey, we're going to get back to this in uh, three to 26 months. <laughs> you know, it's like the biggest window, like not even the cable guy does that kind of window. Right. And they just right. give you this window and like it could be three to six months. It could be 30 months. I don't know. We don't know. And I saw that a lot with the infrastructure bill where it was like, you just need to establish an office somewhere in the next two years in order to start spending this money that's allocated for this year. And, and like just the wild stuff that we're seeing these days. So it's kind of fun. And, and by the way, I've, I've got, j- just to make sure, because I'm thinking this through my head, there are two other trends. And one of them speaks to what you just said. Yeah. The Buy America Act. The infrastructure bill talks about increasing American manufacturing. Well, the Buy America Act, I still believe that the domestic requirement is 55%, but it's supposed to go to 60, 65% in like 2024 and 75% in 2029. Now, I'm not sure that's passed yet. Mm-hmm. I know that the recommendations, right, to change the FAR are in, but the objective is to reestablish American manufacturing. Companies that go, obviously, this is for commodity-based companies, product-based right, right, companies, right? right? All right, well, what does that really mean? They know, look, if you sell product and you know, you've been working to make sure the the two-part test, right? There's a two-part test. It's, you know, where are the components? Where is it manufactured? But on the component side, you know, if you're getting all your stuff from Pakistan, you're getting all your stuff, even if it's a trade agreement at country, you've got to build relationships now with new manufacturers and new plants. There's many factories in the United States that are going to to shift their product lines. They already have the machines. They already have the equipment. And gee, to go from making towels to making scrubs, right, as an example, is going to be less than somebody standing up a completely brand new manufacturing facility. Yeah. Look for manu... All right, so for the product companies, find manufacturers that are likely to enter your product area and start the conversations now. Because if you wait until the government shifts 
dwarfs its domestic percentages for Buy America Act. Other companies will have already established the relationships yeah. with those manufacturers, with those factors. Yeah. Does that and, make sense? Yeah. And they, they will either have locked you out or you you will be way down on the list for delivery. Whereas if I'm buying first and I've had the relationship, I've got the volume with you, you're my number one revenue source. I'm going with you versus this other guy who wants you know a much smaller volume infrequently, things like that. So yeah, I think it's a big one. Yeah. And, and the big thing for all the product companies, uh, all the companies that are listening to this podcast, you need to think strategically about this and you don't wait. Okay. You can't wait on this. Look at your supply chain. Look at what you need to do in order to meet the 65, 75%, whatever it is requirement. For some companies, you're literally shutting down from purchasing overseas. Mm-hmm. And you literally, I mean, it's not like, oh, I need to find 10% more in the US. Strategically think about your supply chain and think outside the box, start yep. building new relationships. Absolutely critical because otherwise, if you don't start today, three years from now, four years from now, you'll have no government business. That's right. Hey, you, you mentioned that you had a couple more trends. What's uh, What else is on your list that we hey, haven't hey, hit? The last one would be set aside percentages. Today, the percentages, and, and we all know this, right? 5% is 8A woman-owned, 3% hub zone, service disabled, zero for you know just being a veteran. That's today. There's a hard push. None of this has been approved yet, right? And man, there are a lot of lobbyists working on this. But, you know, as a result of the current administration saying, hey, we're going to increase, you know, you know, minority, socially disadvantaged, et cetera, to 15%, right? It's been in the news everywhere. We're mm-hmm. all hearing about this 15%. Well, there's a hard push to increase woman-owned from 5 to 7%. The discussion on 8A is to take it from 5 to 10 and then 15 over a number of years. And then SDVOSB, which is 3, they're talking about moving it to 4 and then 5% and then 7%. So there's parity mm-hmm. with woman-owned small business, yep. right? But here's the, is it good for government or is it good for contractors? Yes. There is really strong consternation, frustration in the government about the strength and ability for small businesses to execute complex requirements. I've talked about this before with you. I was at a conference, this was about two years ago, and there was a two-star general. I was the uh, one of the uh, keynote speakers and a two-star general came up to me and I talked to him offline and I asked him about these increasing small business set-asides. And he looked at me and he didn't even say this was off the record. He goes, we don't like being forced to contract with small business. We don't like being forced to contract with eight A's because so many of them fail. Man, I just looked at them and I was like, really? You know, part of me uh, wanted to respond back with, well, that's because your source selection sucks. <laughs> if I can be, if I can be really blunt about it, but but I didn't say that to him. Increasing the percentages looks good, right? Yeah. It looks good. It sounds good. It's good for the small business community, obviously. But none of that matters right. if the buyers are looking for ways not to follow the regulations. And give you an example: you can have this federal agency, and this buyer goes, "Man, I have been burned by small business too many times, but I know I have to put this out as a set aside." Well, they'll do a source of salt. And then they'll ask for a rough order of magnitude. And then they'll go, you know, we got a lot of responses, but none of them were really what we were looking for at the price points that we felt were competitive. And then they go, we're going to release it full and open. So these new percentages, if 
are they're likely coming, not sure when, maybe a year or two, but raising percentages doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work the way we want it to. Mm. It's a really interesting topic because it, it is never as simple as, oh, 5% goes to 8A. Okay, here's 5% of our dollars. There's just too many companies, uh, small companies that make mistakes, right? And, and again, this is not, this should not fall on industry. It should fall on government right. to more strongly perform source selection and do their due diligence. Right. So my final point on this before you close us up is even if these percentages increase, it doesn't mean the government's happy about it or that they're going to do exactly what you think they're going to do to hit those numbers. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. You know, this is a really good one. And it actually ties into one that I was going to bring up is how even though the percentages have been what they are, not everybody in government hits the current percentage. So I always point to if they're not hitting the current percentage, why do you think they're going to hit it if they raise it? Like, let's start there. And that's then, bloody. That's bloody awesome. Yes. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And then from that point, I think you remember it was a few months ago, I was on a webinar and I said something about this and it really messed with some SBA people. I was like, there is no mechanism in place to punish people for not hitting sure the SBA will send them a letter and well, you those know, numbers aren't those numbers aren't real anyway you, you know right, so you, I, you can't trust the SBA you, scorecard and, and I know you, SBA you. is going to get I, I have a lot of colleagues friends that work at the SBA and they'll get mad at me for saying it but if you look at the numbers out of Sam's databank and you actually <clears> run the reports you just yeah. got scratch your head at some of these ratings yeah, yeah. and yeah, here's the thing though so if I'm a contracting officer or a contracting specialist or a junior contracting specialist whatever it may be, right? And I'm looking at a contract I need to award and company A is the only one who is bidding on this thing and they're an 8A. And I'm like, you've been in business how many months? You've done what work? I'm like, and we should just cancel this thing instead of award it if they're the only one. Or I'm going to you know, use some of the process you're talking about to, to pull this back in and put it out full and open because yeah. I am not going to risk my job. I'm not going to risk going to jail, any of that kind of stuff by awarding it to a company that we've, we heard a lot of this in COVID and it's been going on for years and years where some 8A company, and, and I don't want to bash 8A companies, that this is mm -hmm. not about that. Absolutely it's just not. about what was in the in the news recently where they awarded an 8A contract for like $100 million in PPE and then like $40 million of that goes into sports cars and whatever. <laughs> and like, it's just this crazy thing that unfolds and the contracting officer's like, man, I'm going to jail. You know, that's all they're thinking. Right, I'm going to jail, and so there's just to me there's this frustration in the market of why are we trying to force more when we're not hitting the goals? And part of it is to me what I see as a trend is a lot of businesses have been squeezed out of business, and there are some that are left over. So now we have more contracting requirements, less companies able to do it, and I do think the government's kind of tied their hands with, hey, you've been part of squeezing some of these companies out, and now you have left what you have left. Carol and I were talking about this a while back and, and he was saying, you know, in the last big infrastructure boom, the challenge they had was there was way more contracts that they needed to put out there and not near enough contractors because people were like, hey, I'm tapped out. I can't find employees. We just can't do any more than we're doing. And so they were done and yet there was all this stuff. The other trend is skilled labor shortage. Yeah, Skilled labor shortage. You're going to see that all through 2022. All of these pieces, all of these trends, right? Whether it's the digitization, it's the cybersecurity, uh, strategic sourcing, really strategic sourcing. When you add all of these trends,
trends together and companies that have a lack of tactics and strategies and they're not communicating value. They're just, you know, hey, here's what we sell, right? When I was facilitating the panel at the Veterans Conference in November, Department of Defense said, we have lost about 50% of our industrial base for small business. Mm. Think about that. Thousands of companies. uh, It's tens of thousands. It's crazy. And if you're listening, think about that for a minute. One out of every two companies that have been selling to the Department of Defense have said, I'm done. I I can't win a contract. And and here's the thing. They can't win because they don't have a a strong enough sales strategy, right? They don't understand the market. They don't have the right tactics and strategies, right? And that's our focus, right? That's what we focus on. But these trends are going to continue to decrease, decrease the size of the defense industrial base Mm -hmm. over and over again. I I, I mean, we're already 50%. And so, you know, when when I asked the panel and I said, okay, well, what do we do to change it? Well, we're going to add new regulations that makes it easier. And I'm just scratching my head going, are you listening to what you're saying? You're going to make it tougher. (laughs) Yeah. It's like the, uh, you know, one person on the panel said, oh, we've hit all of our SBA numbers. All the agencies are doing great. And I'm not kidding. Three minutes later, DOD stands up and says, oh, you know, we're doing great in this and this, but we've lost 50% of the base. So SBA scorecards. Oh yeah. We have all these A's, but we've lost half of the base. Yeah. I'm like, are you listening to each other? Yeah. It's, this it's is devastating. A, this is a problem. <laughs> yeah, this is a real problem. Earlier you said, and we're going to wrap this up here in a second, but earlier you said, you know, this is a trend for 2022. If I was looking at the crystal ball, I would say this is probably going to continue into late 2020s, into 27, 28, something like that. We're going to see this because administrations are going to come in and out. Politics are going to change a little bit here. They're so slow at actually identifying the trends and the problems. I mean, they're just now saying, hey, I think this 8A program is not working like we thought. So maybe we should invest more in the actual coaching mentoring (laughs) of those folks, you know, with a program that's been going as as long as it has. So I see this trend going into the late 20s, you know, maybe 27, 28 or or beyond. Here's the trend that I see that's going to come out of this. This is, again, me looking in the crystal ball. You're going to see companies try to buy up the talent wherever they can, either through acquisition or they're going to lure people away. And you're going to see some companies that really, really grow and profit from this. I do think you're going to see more that go away. And I do think you're going to see some newbies enter the market and just be like, what's going on? How do we do this? But I think for the most part, a lot of companies are going to shed what I would consider even anything remotely close to dead weight. They're going to get leaner and meaner because they have to. And I, and I see that coming. So, yeah, I, I mean, the, uh, the, the wrap rates, right. For those of you who don't know what we're talking about, it's your fully burdened rate, right. It's all the percentages, overhead, GNA, your profit margin, whatever, you know, 1.6, 1.7, whatever that number is. Uh, yes, totally agree. Companies are going to have to get more lean so that they can have better pricing. The other thing though, that you just mentioned M&A right now, now mm. we could have an entire podcast session, uh, uh, you know, episode on M&A. We should. We should do that. We, we probably should because, uh, you know, in the last three months alone, uh, at least six of the companies that I work with are all getting their first, their initial valuations. Yeah. Mergers and acquisitions, that is a huge way people are growing in the government space right now. And so every, I, I mean, the M&A business is booming, but yeah. that's for another day. 
Yeah, that is for another day. So a lot of great recommendations on this one here today. I really appreciate you coming on here and taking the time. We always have a hard time shutting down the podcast when the two of us get on here. Yeah, so, but, yeah, it but goes if, forever. But yeah, really, really good stuff. I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. You know, we're not going to wait this long before we bring you back on. So thanks again. <laughs> yes, appreciate yes, it. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for listening to Game Changers for Government Contractors. For a full list of episodes and other resources, be sure and check us out on the web at www.rsmfederal.com slash gamechangers.